the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. What if evangelical apologetics has been addressing the wrong problem? Welcome to The Antithesis. My name is Owen Strand, and I'll be your host. It's a serious question. What if evangelical apologetics has trained many believers to bring to bear on the public square and on the conscience of the unbeliever the wrong question? What if evangelical apologetics, in other words, is giving people the wrong question and thus an answer they don't need? That's what we're going to consider today. I'm going to make my case in what follows. Before I do, let me say this first. Apologetics is not about a war between believers. Someone like me, who's going to unfold what's called a presuppositional or covenantal apologetics argument, is not trying to launch a battle. I am thankful for anyone who preaches Christ. You think of 1 Corinthians 1 here, how people preach Christ and they do so from different groups and even different motives at times. But Paul gives thanks for those who do preach Christ. And I do too. In fact, apologists who would not use the method that I use and that I'm going to break down here from Scripture as best I can will in fact make a good number more disciples, converts than I will. So let me acknowledge that up front. Even if someone does not have the method that I myself think is derived from the Scriptures, if they preach Christ, if they seek to love unbelievers— God will, in many cases, bless them and use them powerfully, and I'm thankful for that. I recognize, in terms of not just apologetics, but evangelism, there are evangelists out there who I would not preach the gospel in exactly their manner, but who have nonetheless made thousands and even millions more converts than I ever will. So that doesn't leave us in relativism, in terms of the method we use. Absolutely not. That's the whole point of this little episode. But it does mean that someone like me needs to have both charity and humility in mind and recognize that God uses a diverse church to accomplish his purposes. He doesn't just use folks who you and I would agree with on every particular. So apologetics is not about a war, if that's what it becomes, if apologetics becomes a death match over which method is right, such that we don't actually do and use apologetics, something is going haywire among us. I'm thankful for those who preach Christ, Christ crucified, period. Second truth for us to track in this apologetics episode the knowledge of God is plain to all. Everyone knows God. That's what Romans one nineteen to 20 says. Romans 1 verse 19, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. 
for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived, katharata in the Greek, ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Here the Apostle Paul teaches us something that is positively explosive for the formation of an apologetic method and an evangelistic strategy in a fallen world surrounded by sinners. What Paul says has been missed or not picked up or outright ignored by some in the evangelical tradition. The knowledge of God, Paul teaches here in Romans 1, 19-20, could not be plainer. What can be known about God is plain to them, Paul says, to everyone, to every unbeliever. God has shown it to them. Paul is doubling up here. Paul is underlining his point just in case folks might have missed it. The knowledge of God is not hidden or obscured to the unbeliever. They may say it is, please note, They may communicate that. At some level, they may convince themselves of that. But here, as everywhere, God is Lord, not the unbeliever. The unbeliever thinks they are Lord. The unbeliever thinks in their wickedness, in their depravity, in their sin, that they are the standard of truth, that they are the test of what is reasonable, that they adjudicate matters before them. But that is a lie. That is not true. You must not accept that principle the unbeliever wants you to accept. The Apostle Paul teaches us that even for the rank unbeliever, even for the strongest sinner, and some of us can identify with this language, God has shown to them what can be known about him. We're not thinking here that the Apostle Paul is saying that the unbeliever knows about Christ Jesus. We're not saying that unbelievers naturally know about the gospel. So let that be said. That's why there needs to be what is called special revelation, which is preeminently contained in the Word of God, the Bible. So there is absolutely, as you'll be hearing later on, the need for us to go evangelize, proclaim the whole counsel of God to unbelievers. Special revelation with a focus on the gospel must go out. Nonetheless, everyone knows from what is called general revelation that God is real, God exists, God is God. Everyone knows at all times and in all places that God is real. There is no one out there, in other words, who is a natural-born atheist. There's no one out there who is a justified atheist. Atheist, Romans one twenty, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived, katharata, ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So in the created order, you can see as an unbeliever, far from God, totally rejecting God and God's grace, God's eternal power, and God's divine nature. It's there. It's evident. It's plain. All see these truths according to general revelation. This is general revelation. God has left the truth that he exists and is powerful and is eternal in the created realm. 
at some level, he created the world so that these things would be clearly perceived, not perceived with difficulty, not perceived after a lot of tutoring and education and thinking, not perceived due to complex 19-step proofs built off of autonomous human reason. No, in the things that have been made, there is an eternal witness to the living God. Every unbeliever then, without exception or qualification, is without excuse. No one is a justified unbeliever. No one is a granted atheist. Everyone knows that God exists. No one has an excuse. What can be known about God in a general sense, not a converting sense, but a, an epistemological sense, is plain to them because God has shown it to them. This teaches us, third, that the problem every person has is not a knowledge problem. It's a suppression problem. Let me repeat that if you're tracking with this little episode and you're taking notes or something like this. The problem every person has is actually not a knowledge problem. It's a suppression problem. What does Romans 1.18 say? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Katakonton, suppressing, who are suppressing the truth. Katakonton, I should uh, reverse my Greek vowels there. Excuse me. The wrath of God is revealed. It's revealed from heaven. It flies in the face of the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. What do wicked men, depraved sinners, just like you and me, do by nature? We suppress the truth. We know the truth, but we suppress it. That's what verse 21 of Romans 1 says. For although they knew God, there it is again, underlined, all unbelievers in a general revelational sense know God. They know he exists beyond a shadow of a doubt. This is what your Bible teaches you. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Fundamentally, the unbeliever knows God, but does not wish to honor him as God or give thanks to him. The unbeliever's problem then is a suppression problem, as I have said, but it is also a thanklessness problem. Hear that clearly. The unbeliever actively works to suppress the truth about God that is plainly evident to them, and they do so, in large part, very simply, for moral reasons. It's not epistemological at this point. It's moral. They hate God. They don't want God to get glory. They don't want to honor God. What's implied in Romans 1, 21 to 23, is that they want to honor themselves. They actually want to give thanks to themselves. Or, to broaden it, they want to give thanks to anyone besides God. In truth, when the unbeliever gives in to unbelief, what they will end up doing is giving thanks at some level to themselves. They will become, functionally, God. Life will orbit around them. But they do not have 
According to the Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Romans 1, a knowledge problem, fundamentally. They don't have a cognitive difficulty or impairment. No. Actually, even in their lost, fallen, natural state, the unbeliever is entirely able to know God, but not just able. They do. They immediately know God, to use a technical term. They don't know God when they get to be 37 years of age. They don't know God at age 12, at the age of accountability or some such concept. They, they know God, really, from their earliest days. This isn't, of course, spelled out in detail. But the implication from the Apostle Paul here is, is not that we really don't know God. The stress isn't on how little we know God, even in our natural fallen state. The stress is completely the opposite way. The stress is on how we definitely, plainly, clearly know God. Not from a salvific angle, of course, but from a comprehension level. This means, fourth, that these truths transform apologetics. Negatively, first, first of two points here, point four and five, apologetics is actually not about proving God's existence from reason. That's what many apologists have given attention to, following in particular in the Thomistic line. You need to prove God's existence from reason because unbelievers don't believe in God. They, they tell us they don't. They're skeptics. They're atheists. They're agnostics. And so what you need to offer them, for example, are five proofs from reason. You don't even need Scripture because they don't receive Scripture. So go outside of Scripture. You don't need it. It's important to understand that in this paradigm— you can make your way to God. You can become a Christian entirely through the use of reason. That's what Aquinas himself said very clearly in his writings. So you can thus jump out of the biblical system, and you can work from different proofs, the moral proof, cosmological proof, so on and so forth, and you can thus lead people to become theists, which they naturally aren't, according to this system, without scripture at all, without evangelism, and they can then have their central need met and their central problem solved. They can be, they can be given proof, definitive proof, that God exists from reason. Their central problem is a knowledge problem, according to this system, and we need to meet it. They tell us they don't know God. They tell us there's no reason to believe in God. They tell us all the evidence lies in the naturalist direction. And so many Christian apologists, no doubt some of them well-intentioned, have tried to answer that call. They've tried to take up the challenge given them by so-called thinkers who are actually autonomous in their reason, exalting themselves against God. But here's the deal. Reason is the problem for us. It is not the solution. What do I mean? I mean that humanity in its natural state uses God-given reason, the faculty to think critically and analytically, to suppress the knowledge of God. That's what we naturally use our reason to do. 
or if you want to broaden the category, that's what we naturally use our mind to do. We use our mind to suppress the knowledge of God that is plain to us. Apologetics, then, needs to rewire this equation. Reason is not the solution here. In other words, we don't want to lay track outside of the Word of God by which someone can follow the breadcrumbs and end up entirely outside of the witness of the Scripture and the Gospel at a reasonable Christianity. That is actually a posture of apologetics that does not challenge the idolatrous heart and mind of the natural man. It actually serves it. It teaches the unbeliever that they are reasoning correctly, basically, in that they are not reasoning from the grounds of Scripture. Such a method, apologetically, basically lets them continue in that autonomous mindset and continue in it all the way to the moment that they accept theism. And perhaps eventually they make a kind of leap of faith and accept the Scripture as true and the Gospel as true. But all of this suffers from one small deficiency. This isn't what apologetics is about. It's not about proving God's existence from reason. The problem we face with unbelievers in executing the apologetic and evangelistic task is that the unbeliever does know that God exists, whether they admit this or not, but they suppress the truth. They suppress the truth about God. They suppress the witness of their conscience. They suppress the reality that there is made reality in the cosmos. They suppress truth of every kind. And so their fundamental need, fifth and finally, is for apologetics that grounds itself in proclaiming God's truth from the Word. Apologetics, to put that slightly differently, is about proclaiming the truth about God that all know from general revelation, and then unfolding the whole counsel of God with the gospel at the center. Apologetics is not fundamentally about treating man's knowledge problem, although there's a great deal of biblical truth and thus knowledge that we seek to pass on any chance we can apologetically and evangelistically. But the fundamental task of apologetics is to challenge man's suppressive mind and heart. That is goal A1 of apologetics and evangelism. And I keep linking the two, by the way, because they are so closely linked. There's never a sense then, if you're tracking what I am laying down here, in which some of the time as an apologist doing the work of apologetics, we use a presuppositional method, assuming that God is real and then building everything from there off of especially the counsel of his word. And then some of the time we opt out of that framework and we do evidential apologetics or we do classical apologetics. If we must treat God as if God is real, and if the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord, Proverbs 1-7, apologetics and evangelism does not take you at the very, very end to the fear of the Lord. Apologetics, evangelism, and the entire system of proclamation of the Christian faith begins in the fear of the Lord. It begins from the starting point that God is real, 
which general revelation tells all men, God is truthful, God has spoken, God is judge, and gloriously, God is redeeming a people for himself. That's what apologetics seeks to unfold wherever we can. So apologetics is about proclaiming the truth about God, and you never should proclaim the truth about God jumping out of the Christian faith. As a Christian, in other words, you shouldn't try to reason as an unbeliever in any positive sense to get the unbeliever to cross the line to belief. You can enter into the worldview of the unbeliever, but you always do so to do two things. To one, show them where there are still remnants of the witness of God in their thinking and their conscience, and secondly, to show them how their system ultimately ends up in irrationality and chaos. But you never enter into the worldview, the system, the ideology of the unbeliever in a positive sense and say, you know what, you're right. Let's set aside the fear of the Lord. Let's not presuppose that God is real. And now let's find our way to the Christian faith. That is fundamentally a viewpoint and an approach that goes directly against what Proverbs 1-7 says. It's a method that basically says you only enter into the fear of the Lord. You only fear the Lord at the end of this entire system of engagement. Whereas if we're going to be biblical, we've got to start, I repeat myself, with the fear of the Lord. And what we do is we do not coddle the unbeliever, we challenge them. We recognize that they fundamentally have a suppression problem. They don't need a proof from reason to believe that God exists. They know that God exists. They need to be challenged to leave that godless skepticism behind. You see all of this play out in Acts 17, 22 to 34. Paul is in Athens. I'm going to move through this very, very quickly. He's engaging Gentile unbelievers at the Areopagus. He addresses the men of Athens in Acts 17, 22, and he notes that they are worshiping the unknown God. In verse 23, he says, What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. What is Paul doing? He's using the precise method that I have been trying to chart. He's working off of general revelation. He's not doing what some would call contextualization and trying to show that the Christian faith is fundamentally really like unbelieving systems. No, he's taking his audience to the truth of general revelation. He's He's saying, you know that God exists, fundamentally. You don't know the truth about the biblical God. That's what I'm here for, as a witness to that God. But you definitely know that there is God. You call that God unknown. Here is that God. This I proclaim to you, Acts 17, 23. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, 
does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. What is Paul doing? Paul is saying, you know that the true God exists, but you have suppressed the truth about him and formed a God in your own image. You've warped the truth about God. And Paul takes them to creation first. The God who made the world and everything in it is his first point of reference. There is a creator. This world did not have a neutral start. No, God made the world and everything. And God providentially rules this world. He's Lord of heaven and earth. So this is the ruling God. The creating God, to connect these points, is the ruling God. So you, unbelievers, you think that there's this unknown God out there. But I'm here to tell you, Paul effectively says, there's a creator, and that creator is Lord. That creator is the one who rules all things. He doesn't live in temples. He's not served by human hands. He needs nothing. The pagan gods are not the true God. They are false gods. They are man's attempt to take the knowledge of God that man naturally has without any training or tutelage, but then suppress that truth and then reform a God they want to worship. This is what every human heart does. Every human heart takes that knowledge and capacity for knowing God and warps it, turns it around does not naturally follow and obey that God that they know. Instead, they suppress that truth and they channel that capacity they have for worship of something greater to worship of something lesser. In Romans 1, Paul says that they will worship the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. So man naturally has an idolatrous tendency. Tendency is too weak. Man naturally has an idolatrous instinct where we take the knowledge of God that we all possess, everyone without exception, and we instead turn that capacity away from God and we worship anything but God. Having said all this, Paul goes on to say in Acts 17 that God is not far away. Acts 17, 27. He is actually not far from each one of us. And then he quotes a couple sources from the pagan world. What Paul is doing here again is laying the foundation that we would call general revelation. There's a witness in the writing of Aratus and others that God exists and that we are creatures made by the true God. Paul isn't affirming secular systems, godless systems. He is again using the truth, the witness of general revelation to establish that there is a God, and that actually his audience knows this God, knows this God is real, knows this God exists, but rebels against this God. And the fruit of that rebellion, the evidence of that rebellion, is that they don't worship this true God. They're, they're thankless. They don't want this God. They reject this God. God is near to us then, but we also must confess, according to Paul in verse 29, that God is not like us. Being then God's offspring, he proclaims, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. 
God is not an idol. You can't make him in your own image. You're made in his image. You must understand, this is me, not Paul. (laughs) You must understand that there is an image-making battle that goes on between God and man. God successfully makes man in his image. Sinful man, rebelling against God, playing out the, the fall of Adam generation after generation in our own experience because of Adam's fall, tries to make God in his image. That's what Paul is after here in Acts 17.29. But the truth is that, of course, man cannot successfully make God in his image. Man tries. Don't misunderstand. Man tries. Man tries with gold, silver, stone, and every other material and thought imaginable. But you cannot actually make God in your image. You can think you can. You can try, but you can't do it. Man is inerasably the image of God, marked as God's, ontologically showing that God is real. We are the image of God, 1 Corinthians eleven seven. It's not something we do. It's not a certain trait or attribute in us. There are lots of effects and ramifications of being made in God's image. Absolutely. There's all sorts of capacities we have as image bearers that connect. But fundamentally, we are the image of God. And what we sinful image bearers do is try to make God in our own image when we are fundamentally made in God's image. Okay, what's, what's the charge then? It's very clear in Acts 17.30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. The apologetic and evangelistic task, as displayed here gloriously in Athens, leads to the call to repent. The natural man knows God, not salvifically, but knows that God is real, God exists, God is over all. The natural man suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. Every single person from the Mensa genius all the way down to the person who can barely put a sentence together. What is the call then to every human person, to the brilliant and the unbrilliant alike, to the thinker and the non-thinker so-called alike? It is very simply to repent. It's to repent of the suppression of God and the simultaneous forming of an idol to replace God. Man naturally has that capacity for worship that is completely unlost and remains intact after the fall. But man does not worship rightly after the fall. That capacity God has given man to worship him is now directed toward creaturely ends, toward creatures themselves, towards the self, towards Satan, whatever it may be. And so the call that Paul issues is a repentance call. It's not a call of knowledge. It's not a call 
to come and listen to his 17-step rational proof. That is absolutely not what the Apostle Paul issues here. He summons the unbeliever to recognize that every person, whether they know it or not, is one step from eternal damnation. This is because, verse 31, God, the Father, has fixed a day by which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, Christ. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The Father has fixed a day. Every day is fixed, according to Christ, in Acts 1-7, according to the Father. It is not for you, Christ says, to the band of disciples he is discussing things with in Acts 1, to know times or seasons that the Father has appointed or fixed by his own authority. God the Father has authority. It is not limited authority. It is eternal authority. God the Father has fixed a day. He is the one who rightly appoints all things. He is the one who justly sets the calendar, because that is fitting to him as Father. We're in the process, as I've discussed on other episodes, of losing God the Father from our evangelical theology. We're very happy to have Christ do the tasks that are appointed to Christ. We're very happy to, do, to have the Spirit do the tasks that are appointed to the Spirit. But when it comes to the Father, for example, the planning, sending, uh, fixing agency of the Father, we collapse that into the whole Godhead. And what we do, if we follow that line of thinking to its conclusion, is we end up losing any meaningful doctrine and knowledge of God the Father, where the New Testament wants us to have item after item that teaches us about the identity and the character and the work of God the Father. God the Father is a real person, person of the Godhead. And God the Father is the one, according to this verse, who has fixed a day. He has appointed the day of judgment. He will judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. We know, of course, that the Father never works in a divisible sense from the Son and the Spirit. What the Father is doing, the Son and Spirit are involved with always. Of course, it must not be the case opposite that. And yet, we must, taking our cues from exegetical theology, recognize that the Father, according to this verse, has both fixed the day and appointed the man who will be the agent, the executor of his judgment. And thirdly, the Father has raised this man from the dead. So, wow, here Paul gives both a theology of judgment and a theology of God the Father. Isn't that remarkable? The Apostle Paul does the complete opposite, in other words, of teaching the very intellectual folks at the Areopagus, a kind of general theism, this is the dead level opposite what a lot of us have been trained to do 
by different apologists in recent decades. We have been trained that we should feed the unbeliever all sorts of general theism and truths of reason such that the the image that they get if they're following the argument and tracking the proofs that we give them is that of a kind of general theism, a general divine being. And then what happens when we have successfully pushed them to see that there must be a general theistic being out there is we, as I said earlier, jump to a different cliff and all of a sudden assume that the biblical God is the true God. In reality, what the Apostle Paul does in Athens is the complete opposite. He builds for them, yes, a theology of judgment in, the, in terms of these few verses, but he builds for them a theology of not a generic God, not even a generic Godhead, but of God the Father particularly. Even as he does so, he is in truth giving them the rudiments of biblical Trinitarianism. Because we're picking up here that there is the one who has fixed the day of judgment, and then there's also a man who is going to judge all the wicked. So this isn't a full-fledged discourse in Trinitarian theology here in Athens that the Apostle Paul gives. Nonetheless, the picture of God that he especially unfolds at the end here is of God the Father not a generic God, not a vague theistic presence. No, Paul is proclaiming the true biblical God. So his apologetic work is less about persuasion from the use of reason alone, and more about, much more about, is about proclamation of the one true God. What does this meet with? Verse 32 tells us that when the men of the Areopagus hear of the resurrection of the dead, some of them mocked. So we should expect mockery if we're being faithful to our task. But not everyone mocked, did they? But others said, verse 32, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. Verse 34. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Ha <laughs> ha. So here is such an encouraging conclusion to this passage. Some mock him. Some will mock us. Some say, we will hear you later about this. Let's talk about this another time. They're thinking. Paul has them thinking. By God's grace. Paul leaves, but even as he leaves, some go with him, some join him, some believe in the true God, some come to Christian faith. Paul has worked off of general revelation. Paul has challenged the idolatrous suppressing instincts of the natural man, and now Paul has proclaimed the excellencies of God. In a form, he has given them the whole counsel of God. I don't mean every point of Christian doctrine, but he's given them a broader presentation of the one true God, and he has challenged them not to think about it, 
not to turn over the proof in their mind in in the successive months that follow, but very simply to repent. He has indicated, in fact, that apologetics is not fundamentally about inviting people to think. Apologetics is commanding people everywhere to repent. This isn't a thought exercise for intellectuals ordered around the achievement of belief and a vague Christian theism. This is a command standing upon the very authority of the Word of God to everyone to repent because judgment is coming. God the Father is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed Christ, and he has shown that he will judge the world by raising this man from the dead. Wow. This is a reframing, not from me, not from some new idea, but from the ancient text itself. This is a reframing of apologetics. Apologetics should not fundamentally train its guns on a cognition problem, a comprehension problem. Apologetics should train its guns on the suppression problem of the unregenerate mind and heart. That's what we should be about in doing apologetic work. Will the conversation go lots of different places? Absolutely it will. We can actually have discussions about all sorts of matters of common grace and reason and different truths of the cosmos, but we never do them outside of the assumption, the knowledge that God is real and the Word of God is the ultimate revelation of God. We don't toggle between different apologetic methods, in other words. We hold fast in what we call a presuppositional or covenantal method. We assume, we know, presuppose that God is real. That's what the Apostle Paul does in this chapter. Read it again if you've heard this humble little podcast and you have a bunch of questions and maybe even you have some bones to pick with me. I'm sure you will. This is only a 40-ish minute little episode after all. There's lots of different questions to sort out. Presuppositionalists are not scared of engaging unbelievers as they discuss general truth, so-called. We can do that. But what we make clear is that you can never know anything truly, truly, ultimately, outside of presupposing God as real and ruling all things. The beginning of wisdom, not merely the end of wisdom, is the fear of the Lord. Unbelievers, therefore, can know all sorts of true things. Unbelievers can know disciplines themselves, math or science, something like this and be an expert in their fields. And we as Christians can know a fraction of what they know and can need, in an educational sense, to learn from them. But you cannot know anything truly as God intends it to be known until you know it in the system, the web of the biblical world view, a biblical system of truth. That is when you don't just know truths because of common grace, from God, that is when wisdom has begun in your life. 
when you're not storing up facts and ideas and trying to build a broader framework in your own strength, from your own mind, from your own fallen intelligence. No, wisdom begins when you start thinking from the starting point that God is real and God must be feared and God must be reverenced. That is when you stop merely accruing knowledge and you start gaining true biblical wisdom. All of this, as I say, is what the Apostle Paul practices in Acts 17. And what the Apostle Paul practices is only what the Apostle Paul is saying in a slightly different conversation in Romans 1. Humanity, then, does not have a comprehension problem. We actually continue and will continue to know that God is real and God exists until God shuts all of this down. That's what the Apostle Paul indicated was happening and was real in Athens in Acts 17. Now, the unbeliever does need (laughs) proclamation of the truth of God. So it's not that general revelation will get you to glory. It won't. You need special revelation. You absolutely must hear the gospel, and you must repent based on this gospel. But the reality persists nonetheless. Humanity's fundamental problem is not a comprehension problem. It is a suppression problem. So, Christian, as we wrap this up, everyone around you who you are trying to engage from a distinctly Christian standpoint, is suppressing the truth in some form and in some way. Everyone around you is a natural-born theist. There is no such thing as a natural-born atheist. Everyone around you knows something of the eternal power and divine nature of God. Moving ahead to Romans 2, very briefly, everyone has a conscience, and that conscience is itself a witness that there is a God. There is a greater moral order in the cosmos, and that moral order is not generically overseen, but it is overseen by the living God. And everyone in the cosmos, everyone around you needs to hear the truth of God, the whole counsel of God, and needs to hear the call to repent of their suppression of the knowledge of God. That is what apologetics bends toward. That is what we are after. We are not trying to make people general theists. We are trying, by the grace of God, as we pray all throughout this work, we are trying to see God lead people in his magnificent grace out of their suppressive unbelief into the marvelous light of the truth of God. We, therefore, must not try to convince people to accept a vague theism. We are trying to bring people face to face with the Father who has fixed a day through the Son, and we are asking that Father to send the Spirit and give faith in the crucified and resurrected Son in order that when they meet the Father, they will not meet that Father as judge, but they will meet that Father as the one who welcomes them home for all eternity and beyond. 
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.